this week on Political Research Digest, How Debt Finance Leads to War and Defense Spending. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. We're increasing defense spending and striking militarily, and we're putting it all on the national credit card. That may be no coincidence. New research finds that Americans are more supportive of wars when they're financed through debt rather than taxes. I talked to Sarah Kreps of Cornell University about her recent study with Gustavo Flores Macias published in the Journal of Conflict Resolution called Borrowing Support for War, the Effect of War Finance on Public Attitudes Toward Conflict. Debt finance may also help boost military spending. I talked to Matt DiGiuseppe about his new research published in the Journal of Peace Research, Guns, Butter, and Debt, Sovereign Creditworthiness, and Military Expenditure. He finds a worldwide pattern, with creditworthiness leading to more military spending, especially in response to threats. Traditionally, wars were financed by taxes, but Sarah Krupp says the turn to debt finance has limited democratic accountability. One of the big theories of democratic accountability in war is that not just you need support uh, from the people to go to war and and sustain the war, but that what makes a democracy different is that since the public bears the burden in blood and treasure, the kind of whole accountability basis of war is is that democracies would keep these wars shorter and low cost because the public would basically revolt when they're faced with sort of the cost benefit of, you know, it's not that they're not willing to pay the cost, but over time as the, the, the benefit would have to be commensurate with the cost. And if you have then that out of balance, that the public would withdraw its support so we looked at this experimentally just to kind of see the degree to which this was the case. And it turned out that the same war for a, uh, when financed with a war tax has about 16% less support, which actually is pretty significant. So if you think about it, you know, if you go from, let's say, 50% support to 35%, leaders no longer look like they're on a solid footing when it comes to public support. She says debt finance made it easier for Americans to support the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We said, well, what if there aren't those costs? What does that do to democratic accountability linkages? And and so what it suggests is there's this accountability gap that if you were to impose an actual cost, you would no longer have these quite artificially inflated levels of support that we see. So it's not to say that, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, which didn't have war taxes, it's not as though those levels were high. But our point is those same wars would have lost support far earlier if getting support to begin with at all. Krupp says since Vietnam, policymakers have learned to limit the costs in terms of both blood and treasure. Johnson's advisors were saying, hey, we need to pay for this war. We need to control inflation. And Johnson says, basically acknowledging what we know as as academics who have studied this, which is that if you make people pay for the war and make them aware of the cost, that that would cause them to withdraw their support from the war. And he was worried, parenthetically, but importantly, that this would also cause people to scrutinize his social programs. And so I think what it it caused Johnson to really delay in having the war tax, and that was the last war tax we've had. In the survey experiments, they tried all sorts of variations, but all came to the same conclusion. I think what made the findings more interesting is that we did compare with paying the cost in blood, you know, through casualties, and we compared across different types of conflicts. We compared across countries. 
and across political parties. And as a scientist, we like to see variation. In this case, it was pretty interesting that there was such convergence, country, which political party, that this caused people to rethink their support for the war when they were faced with paying the cost of it. And, you know, in a lot of ways, that's what we were expecting. Um, I think what we were surprised by was the consistency with which that was the case. Krebs thinks we may be in a new era with no war taxes, and their results don't depend on time and place. I don't see this going back at all, and I don't see it depending on who's in the White House. And I think the fact that, because we did this in France, too. So France is kind of notorious for being a high-tax state. And we had almost the same percentages that opposed the idea of a war tax there as, as did so here, within a point or two. During recent war debates, tax financing wasn't even on the table. So we looked at this qualitatively in the U.S. We, we asked people, why are you so opposed to this idea of a tax? We've always done that. You know, the U.S. historically has done this. And people said, what? What's next? A walking tax? An air tax? A breathing tax? So what's clear is that this is just no longer part of the political landscape. And that it's not a right-left thing. Um, it's a, just people, this is not something we do now. The norms on this have changed. Krebs expands on the argument in her forthcoming book, Taxing Wars, and finds a global pattern. The book is much more cross-national. As I mentioned, I brought in evidence from France and Israel, India. And I think what is remarkable is that these countries, the, the public in all of these countries, have a, a, a sensitivity to these high taxes and high-cost wars that wasn't present before, that is just no longer worth the stakes, and that that lack of tolerance for high-cost wars now feeds back into the types of wars they were willing to fight. So um, I found it very interesting, for example, that the U.S. war planners no longer talk about a major war with China have essentially written that out of the lexicon and planning because they know that this is not something that the U.S. public would tolerate. DiGiuseppe also finds a strong worldwide relationship, this time between debt availability and military spending. finding of the paper is that as states increase their creditworthiness, their ability to borrow from foreign creditors, to finance budget deficits, the more they'll spend on their military. And additionally, the more they'll spend on their military uh, when they have greater threats. So not having access to credit really limits a country's ability to finance their military, to deal with threats, and to finance basic military spending. This is pretty intuitive because just like a household budget, right? When you have a credit card, when you have a, a large line of credit on your credit card, you're more likely to spend more on consumer goods. And when emergencies arise, say like severe weather or the prospect of severe weather, you're more likely to invest in things to protect yourself against that uh, in comparison to someone who is lacking a line of credit and thus has to sacrifice their more immediate welfare to provide for security or to address emergencies that might pop up. So the study looks across the world from 1980 uh, into the 2000s and shows that when states have an increase in credit, their military spending goes up. When they show a drop in credit, uh, their military spending goes down. And that when they face threats, when they have credit, they can spend on military. And when they face threats and don't have credit, uh, they don't compensate with higher military spending. 
He says, we usually think of a trade-off between defense and domestic spending, guns versus butter, but many countries don't need to make the choice anymore. I think the conventional wisdom about military spending in comparison to domestic spending is this idea of a guns versus butter trade-off, right? In order to invest more in guns, you need to sacrifice butter. In order to invest more in butter, you need to sacrifice guns. For many countries across the world, this is true. But we also know that for many countries, they can expand the pie by borrowing more money, right? By running budget deficits, they're financed by debt. And my research really suggests that this guns versus butter trade-off is really uh, the ability to overcome it is plays into domestic politics and that politicians, when they need to increase the military spending, have to get that money from somewhere if they don't have access to credit and they'll be reluctant to increase taxes or cut spending. But when you have access to credit, you can borrow. And if people discount the future, say they don't care about borrowed funds in the future, paying back debts in the future as much as they care about losing things today, they're going to, this is going to give politicians an ability to provide guns and butter together. It's not so much of a trade-off. The U.S. has plenty of credit availability and a large defense budget. The United States has been incredibly lucky and privileged that we have the world's reserve currency where the stability, the rock of the global financial system, and even throughout the Great Recession, you know, our interest rates actually dropped as people sought to put their, uh, their assets in the safety of U.S. Treasury bonds. The Great Recession didn't really affect our creditworthiness. Right? Worldwide, defense budgets are usually stable, but you occasionally see the type of seesaw we're about to experience here. There is a tremendous amount of inertia in the defense budget, right? It's really hard to cut defense programs. The military contractors are really good at making sure all districts have some sort of element going into their defense procurement that makes it hard for politicians to cut, politi- uh, cut military spending. So the defense budget, uh, if it's not increased, is generally remaining stable most of the time in the United States. But that's also because we've had you know, very consistent access to credit and haven't had to make such tough choices. Uh, that other countries have had to make. But across the globe, there are, have, there are times where countries make significant changes to their, their military spending. Although creditworthiness and threats lead to more military spending, democracy usually depresses it. There are two big things that, that influence military spending uh, in the literature before my article. It's that one, international threats, right? external threats, and your exposure across, across the globe are going to determine what your military spending outlays look like. The other one is democracy, and democracy has a negative effect on military spending. It stems from classical liberal arguments, right, that individuals want social benefits, they don't want to pay too high taxes, and thus politicians responding to that pressure, or having to respond to that pressure, reduce military spending. What my article shows is that the effect of creditworthiness is sort of on par with this big causal, it's not, maybe not causal effect, but this big correlation in the literature between democracy and creditworthiness. So the effect is sort of on par to that. DiGiuseppe says credit availability is rising globally, but it has not produced a worldwide arms race. Theoretically, my work suggests that as access to global capital increases, we should see more military spending. Uh, but the data just don't support that argument, at least at the global level. And this is probably for a couple reasons, is that we don't really have great data on what's being spent on the military globally. Many countries measure their military spending differently, and aggregating them up is, is quite difficult, uh, especially over a long period of time once you get past the early 80s. The evidence might also help confirm historical analysis. The UK and the US both became major military powers when their credit availability rose. There is definitely a story to be told here about the rise of, 
of the United States and their ability to access credit and their ability to invest in military spending. In fact, a lot of the early research on the relationship between uh, access to debt and military spending suggests that this had a large uh, access to credit had a large role to play in the eventual hegemonic position that Britain uh, upheld 19th century, rather. And it's consistent with the view that the U.S. won the Cold War in part by taking advantage of better credit or, quote-unquote, bankrupting the Soviet Union. There is that argument, right, that the space race and the Reagan military budget played a role in an arms race with the Soviet Union to bankrupt them. And we know that the Soviet Union, because it's a communist country, has such inefficient economic institutions that it's not able to borrow to keep up. And so any additional money they put into military spending came at the expense of domestic spending to keep the population happy. DiGiuseppe also sees implications for foreign policy with Iran in North Korea, where targeting credit might be successful. The strategy um, of the United States and others is to try to limit the access to foreign funds of Iran and North Korea. Certainly nobody, no private creditor in their right mind would lend money to North Korea, right? Uh, or perhaps even Iran for that matter, which not likely to pay it back. Uh, if we're engaged in an arms race with these countries, of course we have so much more military power than them. Denying them access to credit is going to force them to make hard choices, to impose constraints on their ability to provide public goods and, and even private goods in the case of Iran and North Korea to key players in the regime. And the extent to which they, their repressive capacity allows them to overcome this will determine how far they get ahead. But certainly imposing those financial constraints on them is going to force them to make hard choices when maybe they potentially otherwise would not have had. He sees a broader lesson for research as well. We gain by combining the perspectives of international and domestic politics as well as those of political economy and conflict. This is an important uh, development in the field. For a, a while, international relations was split into conflict and war, major power war for that matter, and that was seen as sort of high politics and studies of IPE and economic agree, uh, studies of trade and monetary policy were sort of seen as low politics, not worthy of the same status of warring months. But I think that's changed as international relations has begun, especially in, in the United States school, has begun to appreciate the domestic politics of foreign policy decisions. Right? And if we're considering the domestic politics of foreign policy decisions, it's incumbent on us to explore this tension between political incentives to provide economic benefits and the political incentives to provide security for the country. And those things aren't going to always overlap, right? There are going to be situations where an increase in military spending is going to require sacrifice. And understanding those trade-offs is going to be incredibly important, uh, especially given the United States, where most people don't know a lot about foreign policy. Krebs agrees that breaking down subfield borders is improving our understanding. The international relations folks who for a long time pretended that all of this was international structure doing the work and great power politics, I think there is a realization that domestic politics has a big role to play in influencing both how, how a country goes to war, but how it stays in the war. And so, you know, I think that you cannot explain, for example, how the U.S. is in a 17-year war in Afghanistan without making reference to the way in which domestic politics has created an environment that makes that possible. DiGiuseppe says the two papers covered here fit together well, with public opinion part of the mechanism for debt enabling military spending and war. Sort of gets to the mechanism underlying the research 
that I've done that shows that states that are more creditworthy and spend more on military spending. And also additional research that comes out of the state of dissertation that suggests that when states have access to credit, they're more likely to engage in conflict. It essentially increases the autonomy of leader to overcome domestic constraints. And I find in that across national study, when states that have access to credit do in fact engage in conflict more often. In the future, Krebs expects politicians to keep using the strategy of putting off costs to the next generation to maintain support for war. The fact that, well, for, for very little cost and no kind of democratic backlash, they can keep troops where they are. And that conversely, there's a, a, the politics of bringing troops home is really hard because they don't want to be the ones with egg on their faces if they're the ones to have withdrawn and then there's a terrorist attack that happens on their watch. So I think they just stay the course because of the seemingly low cost of doing it and the, the way in which uh, the discourse of the United States has shifted since 9-11, which is no one wants to be seen as soft on terrorism. DiGiuseppe says even the U.S. should watch out for credit availability to tighten. And when it does, unpopular military budget is likely to be on the chopping block. If the United States, for some reason, loses access to credit, right, we don't get our fiscal house in order, how long is it going to be before military spending is on the chopping block, right? Um, how much do individuals care about security in contrast to these economic incentives? We have some clue, given the macro evidence that I presented, that they'll be willing, or at least that military spending should eventually uh, come at the expense of our access to credit as people prefer domestic programs. But we don't really have good micro-evidence of that so far. Some pre, uh, preliminary pilot studies I've done thus far show that military spending is actually a pretty popular way to reduce the deficit, and that preference for reducing the military spending increases as the uh, prospect of debt crisis comes closer, or at least the perceived prospect of debt crisis is closer in time, and they're less likely to cut military spending. Krebs thinks the trend toward higher debt brings little democratic accountability, but is not sure when it will end. You can't just go into debt indefinitely, but as a country, the U.S. does, or it can and it does. And I think that this has distortionary effects on its, uh, on every, you know, foreign policy because it can kind of think it can do it all. Um, and I think it gets away with it because it has a public that no longer is, is very accountable because it's not having to see or, or pay the consequences of it, either financially because of taxes or in, in blood because it's conscription and now, you know, with drones too. We don't really, we, we, we don't have the casualties that we do. And I'm not advocating for more casualties and more taxes. That's not the takeaway. The takeaway is there needs to be a system of accountability because the, the traditional mechanisms for doing that are no longer present. There's a lot more to learn. Political Research Digest is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and on iTunes. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Sarah Kreps and Matt DiGiuseppe for joining me. Join us next time to find out whether anti-immigration politics killed the California Republican Party and what it might mean for the national future of the GOP. Mm-hmm.